Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the debate focuses on the recent visit by Vice President Mike Pence. He came to Philadelphia on the offensive. We have set a new record, the lowest unemployment ever recorded for African-Americans and Hispanic Americans. We take a closer look at the local impact of Trump's social policy, low unemployment and tax cuts. I've nicknamed them sugar high. Get the money, you spend it. But what do you do next year? You know, ultimately, somebody has to pay for these. Eighty-three percent of the, this tax cut goes to the top one percent. We have an economist, a Republican Party leader and an activist weighing in. He was elected as part of a movement bent on progressive criminal justice reform. There are people within the office who have fully embraced the mission, but not everybody has. I sit down with Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner. We discuss his successes, his challenges, and his challengers. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is Vice President Mike Pence's visit to the city of brotherly love this week. Protesters, of course, in true Philly style, were waiting on him. Before arriving in Philadelphia, though, Mr. Pence was on the offensive. He published an op-ed arguing that the Trump administration's policies have been good for the city and the region. And he made those same arguments in his stump speech supporting Republican Congressman Lou Barletta in his Senate bid. We have set a new record, the lowest unemployment ever recorded for African-Americans and Hispanic Americans. He boasted about boost in defense spending, tax cuts, and more jobs. So let's put those claims to the test. Are Donald Trump's policies good for Philly's bottom line? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Michael Mann. He's the chairman of the Philadelphia Republican Party. We also have Reverend Gregory Holson, executive director of Power. And on the phone, we have Joel Naroff of Naroff Economic Advisors Incorporated. Everyone, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank Thank you. So let's go through it. Vice President Pence says that the Trump agenda is working for Pennsylvania and specifically for Philadelphia. I want to start with Joel, specifically with the issue of taxes. Is it working in Philly? There is no question that tax cuts are helpful. I think the biggest concern for Philadelphia, both the city and to some extent a little bit less uh, the region, is the structure of the tax cuts. To the extent that lower-income households, of which Philadelphia has a preponderance of, didn't get quite as much in the tax breaks, it doesn't have the greatest impact in the city. It's a little bit better when you look into some of the suburbs where you have more middle and and upper-income households who have a slightly greater uh, increase in their take-home pay as a result of that. So to the extent that take-home pay is increasing, it is affecting uh, the region's economy. But I think if you look at the economic numbers, the region econ- region's economy has not soared nearly 
as rapidly as we saw this week in the um, GDP report for the second quarter, which was really strong. And what do you have to say about that, Mike? I think it's been very strong. We are not an island of ourselves. We're dealing with people all over the world. It's an international economy. And I think Philadelphia has, has enjoyed some of these benefits. The unfortunate thing is, yes, if it's just about redistribution of wealth, yes, they may have gotten a bonus of $1,000. And that doesn't seem a whole lot. But for the person making $40,000, that's a 2.5% increase. There is some benefit, but the benefits for the tax cuts is going to the people who pay more taxes. Do you have any comment on that, Greg? 83% of the tax cuts goes to the one first, the top 1%. And so the, the, there's never been a greater uh, redistribution of wealth from poor people to rich people than this tax cut. The fact that they loaded some in, uh, tax advantages or tax cuts on the front end to really appease to people uh, early on, but the benefit of this tax program really benefits the wealthy and really sets up uh, uh, the dangerous thing that Republicans want to do, uh, which many in the conservative movement continue to talk about, dreaming about the day of cutting Medicaid and Medicare and other uh, very important safety net programs. And they're going to use these tax cuts as, as the prop for saying, okay, we have to now cut these programs because we don't have the same amount of revenue we had before. So in the long run, not in the short run, in the long run, Philadelphians lose. Three out of four children in this city are are uh, uh, born through Medicaid. If we lose Medicaid as a program, we endanger children all over the city. You know, one of the things Vice President Pence said was that the unemployment rate is 4.7 percent. He's mostly right with regard to the jobs numbers here well, in you know, Philadelphia. You, yeah, and, and more jobs mean less reliance on, on, on that, right? Uh, the jobs are the jobs of, of 725 an hour. There are plenty of jobs here, and we're thankful for those jobs, but the economy is where you have to work two, three, four, five jobs to get close to having what one job has. Most people don't have the same health care protections, do not have pensions of the past. All that has been dismantled by this conservative movement, and so that the people are in a, are in a weaker position, not a stronger position. Uh, 1973, the, the, the uh, production and and income were near the same. That is, as the gross national product went up, incomes went up with it. Mm-hmm. Since then, uh, incomes have uh, have uh, uh, powered off, and while the gross national product continues to go up, that means people are more productive, do more work, and get less okay. every day because of it. That's not the economy that that they really built America. And, and any response to that, Mike? You got more people. You have historic numbers for Hispanic unemployment and for African-American unemployment. Those are good things. While I agree with Greg about that they're not getting paid enough, I don't think anybody thinks they're getting paid enough. Okay? So it's it's unfortunate that uh, do I agree with a increase in the minimum wage? I do. Okay? But it's got to be balanced in some way. And, uh, you know, the whole pension problem is really a problem hanging over all of our heads. Yeah, okay? that needs to be. That's a major issue. It's a yeah. major issue with the state and the city. They yeah. have huge unfunded liabilities that we're paying for legacy debts. You know, let, and Joel, let's, dig let's, below let's those numbers. Yeah. That, you know, the, the, the pension issue is largely separate from this. I, I think we need to focus on if we're talking about whether or not the tax cuts had a significant impact for the region, we need to focus on those kinds of issues. 
and you know, being a good economist, Mike's both right and wrong at the same time. There's no question that $1,000 is a lot of money for somebody making $40,000 a year. But the problem that economists have with that is that that wasn't a pay increase in the traditional way. Those were bonuses. Those are non-repeatable increases yes. in income. Yes. And as a result of that, I've nicknamed them sugar highs. Mm. You get the money, you spend it, but what do you do next year when you don't get the bonus? And for economic growth, what we need is sustainable wage increases. And that's been probably the biggest disappointment that we've seen uh, coming out of the tax cuts. And Joel, the big argument was, okay, we're going to give these big corporations and small businesses these tax cuts, and they're going to pass that those tax cuts along to their workers. But folks are saying that that's not going to that's not going to happen. Uh, it's early in the process. I think the big problem with claiming victory right now is the whole process of tax cuts. If it works in the way um, the the president and the vice president and the Republicans say, should get more investment, not necessarily more wage increases. I know they've said that. But what needs to happen is productivity needs to rise. More investment in machinery and equipment. And then once that happens and productivity rises, ultimately wages are rising. But that's two to three years down the road. Oh. Unfortunately, what we're seeing is that most of the money that went to corporations, especially large corporations, went to dividend buybacks. And share. Yes. Uh, share buybacks, dividends. Absolutely. And mergers and acquisitions. Again, that one, the uh, top one percent got that benefit and, there. And, and I really want to push back on the idea that if they invest, it's going to lead to higher wages. That has been the Republican conservative movement trickle down theory since Ronald Reagan that has been talked about and talked about, and we still has not trickled down yet on the least of these. And I'm he, the question was about Philadelphia, not about the region. It was about Philadelphia. And trickle-down tax cuts have not effectively changed anything in Philadelphia. And so I really want to push back on the idea that somehow, some way, the wages are going to rise because we give more money to the top 1%. That has not been the case. Uh, When we encourage unionization, when we encourage uh, 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 the raise in the minimum wage, those are the only ways that really raise wages for people. And when we did that in the 1940s and the 1950s, we yeah. saw the most, uh, the one of the highest uh, 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 lifestyle and, and wages uh, at any time in our country. And so, those are the techniques that we need to put push and promote. And that's what this government should be doing, yeah. not giving more to the rich. I think we have to get government to do the work that they're assigned to do. There are many things like up in the 5th Councilmatic District. Yes, they've replaced a lot of the utilities. They've never repaired the streets. Where are the money? Because the, the city and the utilities are collecting that money and turning it over to somebody. Where is that money? Because it shouldn't just be going to fund the city budget. Did President... Donald Trump have anything to do with this? I mean, does the president have that much to do with with the economy? And, and could he impact it in such a short period of time? When the Trump administration came in, fiscal discipline disappeared, and federal government spending has been increasing dramatically. So when you ask the question, can they do that, to some extent in the short term, they can. They yeah. just do traditional fiscal spending. In addition, the tax cuts are having some impact. But what's going to happen next year in 19, so we go through 19, and in 20, 
as the initial impacts of the tax cuts wear off. Will the country end up being, you know, having more debt? Well, that's not a question. The answer to that is yes. And, yeah. But even the Office of Management Budget, which is the president's economist, came out with their new estimates recently, and they're talking about trillion-dollar deficits returning starting in a year in excess of a trillion dollars, and they mm-hmm. go on and mm-hmm. on. So in a short term, the, the, the government has had an impact on the economy, but long term, we're going to have huge deficits. I would dispute that. The results here really are very similar to the Obama economy that has happened for the last On the ground, when you feel it. On the ground, but also statistically. I mean, it's a little bit of a bump on the GDP, but I mean, we've had growth for the last, uh, you know, since the Great Recession, we've had growth for the last eight years. At the end of the Obama administration, we had something like 170 straight weeks of, of growth. And so so this still, in a lot of sense, is the Obama economy. I don't deny that uh, an additional sugar high may have given a sugar rush, but this is still the Obama economy. The key real thing that is not being talked about in any real way is the effect of our technology now on on regular jobs. Yeah. Um, and the fact that when we do investment, major corporations are investing in the technology that takes away Jobs uh, with the rise of artificial intelligence, yeah. with the rise of robots, is uh, are we at a point in our nation's history where our technology is not going to produce enough new jobs? It's simply going to be taking from the old job. I don't disagree with you. I, I saw that there's an app that does virtual interviewing for jobs. Okay, so you uh, might in the interviewing, you may not even get to see the person that's making this, this decision. It could all be done by artificial intelligence. That is a problem. We need solid jobs that regular people can do because I think there's plenty of jobs for set that can sustain families that do not involve universities. And yeah. a position that we as a nation now have to have a principle of full employment for everybody, that anybody who wants a job should be able to get a job and that job should be able to pay a wage that's living. And let's shift gears a bit because social policies also have an impact on the economy And one of the things that Vice President Mike Pence talked about during his visit to Philadelphia um, was, you know, this this whole idea, the ICE policy. We see a lot of uh, impact on the economy because of the separation of families, because of um, increased raids. I mean, can we talk about uh, that part of of the Trump agenda? I I hear you on the impact of the economy, but the reality uh, what it does to us morally to put children mm-hmm. in cages, mm-hmm. uh, to to lock, uh, to separate but, but families. Right, that it was is, occurring under in the Obama administration. I, I I spoke out against it in the Obama administration and any other kind of administration. Right. It's wrong to put children in cages. Is you wrong. and I agree on that? <laughs> it is absolutely wrong, and that behavior has to stop and stop now. So I'm glad we do agree on that. And uh, it is, imp- but there is an economic impact. Uh, on on some of the and we've seen the and just to be clear we've seen the moral impact there are protests I mean mm. and it's really slowed in a way those migrant workers that would come and and deal the the kind of jobs that Americans have not wanted to do mm-hmm. and so it has had an economic impact 
I hate to say that because they weren't getting paid enough on those jobs. And so I don't believe that that was a, a righteous situation, those migrant workers to come over. Some some almost feel like they were imprisoned on farms and, and being paid next to nothing to, to pick the crops for us to eat. No, they needed to be paid a fair wage all along. But, yeah, it had all of it has had an impact on our economy. Yeah. Any comment, Mike or Joel? I mean, this, this social policies do impact bottom lines. Well, the reality is it costs many, um, many millions and billions of dollars to deal with these issues. You have to hire more ICE agents. You got you're spending billions at the border to detain people. I mean, these are all expenses and things that taxpayers are, are paying for. It doesn't make, a, to me at least, a whole lot of sense to spend $20 billion on a wall. It really doesn't raise productivity. It doesn't help do the kinds of things government should be doing. And whether it's the federal government or the state government, and I think Pennsylvania's state government is a real problem here, there's been a total and complete lack of effort in increasing infrastructure spending. When I look at the federal government numbers, and I talked about how they're now adding to growth, they're adding to growth largely through defense spending. Mm, And while we may agree or disagree with that, the simple fact is that's not productivity increasing in terms of getting the key things that government which should be doing, which is spending on infrastructure. And we need to do that at the federal level. We need to do that at the state level. And to the extent that monies are going to these, you know, to things such as ice or walls that could be going to roads and sewers and education, that's a real problem in this economy. And it's a misplaced set of preferences Uh, for political purposes rather than for economic purposes. Before we close out, I want to talk about one other issue because um, one of the things that Vice President Mike Pence talked about, and since we're looking at things from an economic standpoint, he talked about President Trump having broken records appointing federal judges. Um, You know, will this have, how will this impact our region? Absolutely. I I, I would say, first of all, Philadelphia is, has a 26% poverty rate, a 12% deep poverty rate, 400,000 people living in poverty, about 185,000 people living in deep poverty. Deep poverty is about $5,000 for an individual for a year, of, of you know, $5,500 for an entire year, yeah. about $100 a week. And we have almost 200,000 people living like that in this city. That has not changed. That has not gotten better under Trump. We are a town of meds, eds, and beds, medical, education, and hospitality. And so these cuts, uh, with that Supreme Court judge coming on, the Affordable Care Act was only one vote away from being uh, 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 deemed to be unconstitutional. That means millions of people would lose their health care. Tens of thousands of people would lose their health care right in Philadelphia. It would create more poverty and more pain in this city and also a city that's yeah. really based on hosp- uh, hospital work and uh, medical work. It would reduce even uh, those people in those industries. Maybe it raises the whole thing about how long people should be justices, okay, and, and term limits, okay, because they're lifetime appointments, okay, and unfortunately – they come up as they die. We have no control over that, except for uh, Justice Kennedy, who resigned while living. Uh, we basically replaced Scalia because he had passed away. Mm-hmm. Okay, but we now and we have, have an elderly court right now. We have an elderly more than court. Ha- half of the court right. is very elderly. Yeah, but you know we're now at the point where we won't even talk to people. Okay, Be- before Kavanaugh was announced, 
Senator Casey already said, I will not meet with him. Now, in the paper this morning, I saw that he may meet with him Thursday. We're not even allowing people to have a discussion to, to make their case for it. To the extent, you know, it allows for the overturning of the Affordable Care Act, Philadelphia you know, is so heavily concentrated on mm. the medical sector, it has a clear negative impact. Uh, to the extent he was talking about the fact that wage gains tended to be greater as unionization uh, increased, uh, you just saw the, the, the recent decision that uh, yeah. you, know, you can't require people to pay union wages. You've got the issues of deregulation, and to the extent that you know, businesses will, will be less susceptible to regulatory impacts as a yeah. result of that. These are all factors that are economic. Could you guys each give 15 to 20 second closing argument? I mean, will this Trump administration, will these policies from our president, will they have a positive impact or negative? Give me your 30 second argument and close it out. 83 percent of the this tax cut goes to the top one percent. This trickle down economy uh, trickle down where has never trickled down to those who are or the neediest. Uh, that's just not been the pattern over the last 30 years of this trickle-down tax cut kind of thing from Reagan to Bush now to Trump. Uh, and so this this kind of a uh, practice just doesn't work to really yeah. change and transform the lives of, of Philadelphians. All right, Mike. Ultimately, somebody has to pay for these things, whether or not it's through Medicaid. You know, the numbers are just staggering what, the, what they are. And it, it just – also, the tax cuts, yes, they went to the people who paid the taxes. I understand having a heart for people, but at a certain point in time, and with the Supreme Court, yes, they make decisions. But we've we've had an, a, a a country that has gone on for over two hundred years that have lived through these things. Yeah, and final word, Joel. So little of the tax cuts, especially the corporate tax cuts, have filtered down to workers. Maybe that'll change over the next year or two. We have to see. The second factor is my concern that this is just leading to a temporary sugar high. I think most economists are now a little more worried about what's going to happen at the end of 2019 and 2020 than we had been before the tax cuts uh, were implemented. We'll have to come back and and, and see how this all works out. I want to say thank you to Mike Meehan. uh, Thank you to Reverend Gregory Holston. And thank you to Joel Naroff for appearing on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. Thank you. Next up, he blew into office, propelled by a movement bent on progressive change. But now there's pushback. Yup, Krasner is cozy with radicals and activist folks. A six-month pulse check on Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner. We'll be right back. is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, and one thing that gets Philly residents hot under the collar is injustice in the criminal justice system. District Attorney Larry Krasner rode into office last November, caped up for change, and over the past six months, he made headlines thanks to personnel changes, the rollout of new policies, and high-profile plea deals. And during that time, he's faced 
Major pushback from those who say he's too cozy with radical activists and isn't tough enough on crime. So I traveled to the DA's office this week for a check-in with District Attorney Larry Krasner. Larry, welcome back to Flashpoint. Thank you. It's great to be here. So it's been about six months or so since your last visit. How would you rate your first six months in office? Well, I can tell you that I have had a great time doing stuff that I think really matters. We've had some tremendous successes. I'll let somebody else give me a letter grade. Mm-hmm. But I think that we've gotten a lot done. It's it's definitely a battle, but it's a, a battle that we're really enjoying. And what have been the biggest battles for you? The biggest battle, and it's going to go on for quite some time, is culture change. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can write all the policies you want, but the reality is they have to be carried out. And so there are people within the office who have fully embraced the mission, but not everybody has. And there are people in the judiciary or in the court system who have fully embraced the mission, but there are others who are resistant. It's normal. It's how change happens. But, you know, that's what is going to take some time. Now, all eyes have been on Philadelphia. Has it been helpful or hurtful um, to your ability to implement change? You know, I don't know if all eyes are on Philadelphia. I know Lots of national articles. Folks come in here just to talk to you. Well, Mary. I will say this. Some of, the, some of the applicants that we have for jobs as attorneys here or other important jobs here are just from all over the country. They are incredibly talented and, and highly achieving mid-career people or people who are coming out of, you know, elite law schools with fascinating life experiences, a tremendous diversity of different types of talent. So the national attention in that regard has been wonderful because Mm -hmm. not only did we intend to recruit nationally, um, but we are getting incredible applicants and we are hiring incredible people. So in that sense, I think it's been important. We have had an unexpected amount of interest in some of our policies. Mm-hmm. We never thought that would happen. We really thought we were just writing policies to use internally. There would be a little bit of a flurry of local coverage around a couple of them, but instead what happened, and this was not our doing, was you had activists all over the country taking our little policy sheet and going to their local prosecutor's office and banging mm-hmm. on the door and saying, we want to talk to you about these policies. So this that, is an example of what you guys can do here or right. not. Yeah. That's right. And that, you know, to me, that's fascinating and unexpected, Mm -hmm. but I think it reflects the national thirst for real criminal justice reform. Yeah. And so what do you say? I mean, there's, you do have critics. I mean, people feel uncomfortable. They say Krasner is cozy with all these activists and radical folks. What do you say to that? Yup. They're working for you now. Like you got the activists working here. I would say, yup. Krasner is cozy with radicals and activist folks. And, you know, if Dr. King had been around, boy, I would have liked to be cozy with him, too, Mm. because some of those radicals and activist folks change society nonviolently in ways that are incredibly important. You know, they're not wrong about that. And I totally respect the fact that people may have different opinions. I don't expect everybody to agree with what we're doing. You know, what we are doing is being measured many different ways. We don't Mm -hmm. want to do things that fail. We want to do things that work. We know that not every decision we make is right. We know that not everybody's going to agree with it. But so far, we seem to be doing really well. Yeah. And so I wanted to, I came to your press conference where you took a very strong position against the Trump administration's increased raids. You said specifically that, you know, this DA's office will not report people to ICE. Just state your your position on that definitively and then 
My second part of my question is, are there any instances where you would? No, we're not going to report people to ICE. I cannot think of an instance in which we would go out of our way to do it. The fact is that ICE already has information about every arrest that mm-hmm. occurs in Philadelphia based upon fingerprinting. And fingerprinting is done by the police before this office ever even brings charges. So ICE has access to all the information they would ever want. The real question for this office is, are we, without any funding for it, and without any mandate to do it, are we somehow going to become the flunky assistance for ICE? And we're mm-hmm. not. And the reason we are not is because it makes society less safe. We right now have a very significant problem with the underreporting of crime mm-hmm. by immigrants who are fearful that simply by going to court as victims, they will be deported. And Donald Trump has made it clear that that's exactly what he intends to do by, among other things, rather famously deporting a woman victim who came out and uh, appealed to him not to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, These are unspeakable policies by the worst president of my lifetime, someone who should make all of us very concerned every morning when we get up about what lunatic thing he might have done at 3 o'clock in the morning the night before. Mm-hmm. And we are not going to be part of that. We are not going to be part of a world where women who are getting beaten by their boyfriends cannot call the police and they cannot go to the district attorney's office for any kind of protection for fear of their own deportation. We're not going to be part of a system where immigrants are identified by American criminals as likely victims. And so they are robbed and they are attacked and their cars are taken from them because everybody knows that thanks to federal policy, they can't go to the police and they can't go to the DA's office. Yeah. And so there's no examples you could think of, even if the person is undocumented and committed some kind of a heinous crime that you would then turn them over to federal authorities. Our presumption is that we would not do that. The reality Mm -hmm is ICE will know from the moment of taking Mm -hmm. fingerprints, which happens in every arrest, they will have that information. It's merely a question of whether we are going to help them deport X million more people or their limited resources are going to be used to deport people who really should be deported. For example, uh, very seriously dangerous, violent criminals. Mm -hmm. And so I want to switch gears a little bit because, you know, that Robert Wilson the third case, a lot of headlines because of that. The family was very critical of your office about the way things were handled. Could you talk about that a little bit um, in two regards? First, was a death penalty ever on the table with these guys as far as a negotiation tactic? And then second, you know, what was the communication with the family specifically to the grandmom and the sister here? So unfortunately, what has happened with that case is that it was so politicized by the Fraternal Order of Police. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Fraternal Order of Police, that's the same group who endorsed Donald Trump in a city yeah. that went 85 percent against mm-hmm. Donald mm-hmm. Trump. It was so politicized by them that they created the false impression that the sister of Sergeant Wilson and the grandmother of Sergeant Wilson were, quote, the family, unquote. That's not true. The family included two mothers of the children of Sergeant Wilson, Mm -hmm. who also have important things to say, who also had important positions. It is the two children, and it is their two mothers, and it was a grandmother, and it was also, uh, of course, the sister. Out of those six people, four of them did not want the death penalty. The mothers of the children and the children for whom they speak. But that is not how the press covered it. The way the press covered it was the family wanted the death penalty. The family wanted the death penalty. There was a politics to that, as I mentioned. It was a politics that was orchestrated by the Fraternal Order of Police. And frankly, I had to spend quite a bit of time protecting the privacy of those children and the mothers of those children from Mm -hmm. harassment 
um, and some of it very targeted harassment that was directed at at least one of the mothers once it became clear what their position was. That's terrible. I mean, that Mm -hmm. is an awful thing to do to the children of a slain officer and the mothers of those children, Mm -hmm. especially in a case where we know that Sergeant Wilson was killed at a time when he had gone into a, a GameStop store to get a birthday gift for one of his children, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how the press never followed up on that fact that it was at a moment when he was buying a birthday gift for one of his children and simply assumed that the only people who were speaking, the only, quote, family, unquote, yeah. We're a sister and a grandmother, but that is what happened. And it happened because that's what the FOP wanted to happen. And so it cast the entire situation in a false light. Um, the reality is that victims get a voice. Mm-hmm. They do not get a veto and they do not get a vote. And while we have great respect for Mm-hmm. Those who think the death penalty is the proper thing to do. Ultimately, the decision was mine, and ultimately, the decision was made consistent with what those children and the mothers of those children yeah. wanted, which is that we not pursue the death penalty so long as it was a life sentence. Here, it was actually more than a life sentence, it was a sentence of life without the possibility of parole plus 50 years. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So, it was, uh, it was exactly the type of sentence that for decades has been considered appropriate in the killings of police officers. It has been done multiple times mm-hmm. where, you know, prior... It's essentially death by incarceration in a way. It is, in fact, essentially death by incarceration. That is true. Um, mm-hmm. Now, you also asked a question about whether the death penalty was used for leverage. So the short answer is no. What mm-hmm. happened with this case is that long before we were in office, this district attorney's office noticed it as a death case, meaning they issued a formal notice saying that they would be pursuing the death penalty. They did that in this, and they did that in three other cases. And when we came in, that was the position legally of those four cases. Mm -hmm. We put together a committee, and this is consistent with a process that was done in other administrations, of high-level people within this office to consider those cases individually and to determine whether or not to recommend a death sentence or a a sentence of life without parole. And so, you know, it would not make sense for us to fluctuate back and forth on whether we were pursuing a life sentence or we were pursuing a death sentence that would be detrimental, frankly, to uh, victims and to the families of victims to do that. So we wanted to make a decision once and for all. What occurred in this context is that while that decision was being considered and while we were waiting for additional information about the life histories of the defendants, which is part of what you consider when mm-hmm. you're doing this process, um, we were approached by the defense, and the defense uh, indicated that there was an interest on the part of the defendants in a sentence of life without parole. Yeah, so and the, Michael Cord represented the... Michael Cord was involved in representing one of the two mm-hmm. defendants. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the actual counsel of record was um, Trevin Borum or maybe mm-hmm. Dan Stevenson, mm-hmm. but Michael Cord had an involvement with yeah. one of them. Um, and uh, Mr. Cord, by the way, is not the one who approached us. However, there, we were approached. The, it was taken under consideration. And yeah. ultimately, we determined that um, we were willing to accept a plea of guilty to effectively everything. Mm-hmm. The elimination of all rights of appeal, which would make it much more beneficial to the children not to have to deal with going to hearings for a period of decades. And also then, of course, a sentence of life without parole plus. Yeah. And so, you know, just explain to folks, because that's the biggest, whenever 
Um, I do a story about, you know, the DA's office. I get DMs and messages and emails saying, well, you know, what about the victims and what about this? Could you explain to folks who have an interest in how prosecutorial decisions are communicated with victims? And you mentioned briefly that, you know, victims have a voice. They don't have a veto. So explain how how you guys talk to victims, because that's the big question that I get from the community a lot of times. Sure. Um you know, we talk to victims more and more frequently and more seriously mm-hmm. than the prior administration. I understand that's not necessarily what people think, but it is the truth. I, for example, after this interview, will be sitting with the wife of someone who was killed and killed in a brutal way mm-hmm. to hear what it is that she would like to say about the situation and her feelings about whatever sentence might be imposed there. I have mm-hmm. sat with many, many, many families of victims from the juvenile lifer cases where we yes. are we are having mm-hmm. to make new recommendations about a, a sentence for a case that may be 13 years old or it may be 25 years old. Mm-hmm. We've sat with many of those families. We have reached out to many more families who we did not respond or, or maybe said they did not want to speak further about it because, you know. They want to vic- move on, yeah. They, you know, victims need to make their own decisions mm-hmm. about what they want to do. So our commitment to that input is very serious. Now, having said that, the district attorney, the chief prosecutor, represents the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Yeah. We represent all of the residents of Pennsylvania, or in this case, of Philadelphia County, all the Pennsylvanians in Philadelphia County. It is not our job, as it would be in civil court, simply to represent uh, you know, a victim, mm-hmm. let's just say, of a very serious car accident, to gain some sort of uh, request for that victim. Mm-hmm. We have to exercise a level of judgment about what is good for society generally. And the fact is... Um, you know, sometimes those wishes are consistent and sometimes they are not. Yeah. But this movement that is in the DA's office was not elected simply to do what it is that victims yeah. said in every single case. They were, we were elected to exercise our judgment about preventing crime in the future, about making society safer in the future, and about preventing things like the killing of Sergeant Wilson in the future. I would like to point out, by the way, yeah. Sergeant Wilson was not killed while I was in the DA's office. Mm -hmm. He was killed after 30 years of prosecutors who were in love with the death penalty. Yeah. 30 years of prosecutors who were in love with long sentences. Nothing that they did prevented prevented that. that. Mm -hmm. And while, while the law and order crowd like to yell and scream, they don't want to own up that their tactics do not work, that Mm -hmm. they have not prevented these crimes and therefore that different tactics need to be tried. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, just name one or two that you're, you're, you're mentioning those law and order tactics didn't work. What do you think prevents crime? Boy, that's a big question. I mean, uh, I, I mean, you it's know, a good question. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm going to try to answer it. So what prevents crime? If I think you can summarize in a short period of time. I know, but it's, sure. I mean, no, I, I, let me try to answer that question. It's a great question. Um, I think really good public schools prevent crime. I think economic development prevents crime. And what is related to that is not economically disenfranchising Mm -hmm. whole sections of the community by giving them unnecessary felony convictions early that totally disqualify them from all kinds of jobs and all kinds of loans. Um, You know, I think Mm -hmm. providing treatment for mental illness instead of a jail Mm -hmm. cell, providing treatment for the disease that is addiction to drugs instead of a jail cell, heals society. You know, it makes us more economically viable. It makes it better. And what happens with that, of course, is the prevention 
of crime. So I think putting our resources into things that prevent crime instead of just mm-hmm. dumping more and more resources into corrections in the most incarcerated country in the world yeah. is what we need to do. And I know that there's been, you know, we had the creek closed down. Uh, the, the city recently um, met its goals with regard to, um, you know, the number of people who are incarcerated in the city. Um, you know, we've talked about cash bail reforms. There's been a lot of things um, moving uh, in the past, uh, you know, few months. Um, and so I just want to ask you what, you know, a couple of things are you most proud of um, that you've done so far? Um, I think that we are probably the proudest and maybe only because we have the metrics on this mm-hmm. of how quickly and effectively we have been able to reduce the county jail population. Mm-hmm. If you actually look at what has happened over the past few years, the MacArthur Foundation uh, yes. has, has mm-hmm. made some great gains, but they also kind of ran into a wall mm-hmm. last year, and the, the reductions were much were moving much more slowly because they did not have a willing partner in the DA's office. Well, they now have a willing partner in the DA's office, and the reduction... Uh, Actually, since January, maybe even since November, when we yeah. when we won the general election, I think people understood what was coming. The reduction in the prison population has been enormous in the in the last six months. Mm-hmm. Those metrics are clear. It is a much higher rate of decline. And they met the numbers a year early. Yeah. They, they, they met the numbers a year early. I mean, we right now are hovering around 5,000 in the mm-hmm. hottest part of the summer, which is the middle of when you expect your jail population to go up. And that is down from about... 10,000 not too many years ago and it's down from about 8,000 when you know Rich Negrin was uh, in the managing director's office mm-hmm. that is a tremendous reduction um, and I think MacArthur deserves a lot of credit but I think we also have to be honest about this our policies yeah. on taking 26 offenses and having the default position that we would not seek cash bail linked with our policies about the types of sentences we would offer on a guilty plea to offenses that were not violent and not sex offenses and did not involve felons in possession with a weapon. Those policies are what has had this tremendous additional mm-hmm. impact that has gotten us here. Yeah, and city officials said that it was it was a partnership and it, it took a lot of different uh, entities to make that happen. And so are, what are the biggest challenges? And, and do you regret any decision that you made um, now that you've kind of seen it, it roll out? Well, I make I probably make a bad decision every day, honestly. I mean, I I think uh, there's nothing about being elected to office that means I should stop being honest about that. We Not only do we make bad decisions, um, but we are trying to monitor them. We're trying to collect the metrics. So when we feel like we tried something and it went the wrong direction, we can reverse it. What do I think are our biggest challenges? I think our biggest challenge for a long time is going to be to change a culture that has been built up for decades a certain way. But we are going at it systematically. Even our recruiting, our efforts to bring intellectual diversity, mm-hmm. to bring uh, many other types of diversity in terms of gender and race and so on, our efforts to go geographically to places where people have had different experiences and have gone to law schools where this office never recruited. I think all of that, you know, the legacy of the personnel you bring in who set a new course long after you're gone mm-hmm. is going to is going to really change the culture. So, you know, we're very hopeful about that. It is DAs who often become judges. It is DAs who often become elected officials. So it is my hope that we will not only be able to reform criminal justice in Philadelphia and, you know, maybe some of our, uh, some of the things we do 
will be useful in other jurisdictions. It's also my hope that this will be the on-ramp for the progressive leadership in Philadelphia and in Pennsylvania that we so desperately need. Yeah, and I have a couple more questions, and we'll wrap it up. Um, I had to ask you about this Conviction Integrity Unit. I understand that you guys have gotten a lot of requests. Are you able to keep up? We're not able to keep up yet. Um, Mm -hmm. We are adding significant resources to the Conviction Integrity Unit. We've already added some getting some pretty amazing people. I mean, for example, Kerry Wood uh, came in from Texas. This is a tremendous lawyer who has a tremendous background in forensics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we I could go on and on about various people who are in there. We are bringing in uh, a very skilled person to work on the non-legal side who's mm-hmm. been around these cases for a very long time. We're going to be adding attorneys to it. And, you know, the problem is when you give a population of people who have been ignored hope, yes. then you'll be able to get a whole lot of letters. So we have a bag full of letters. But there are organizations that are helping in that mm-hmm. they kind of vet yeah. so that the really frivolous claims are not the first ones they pass yeah. along. They try to make sure that what they're passing along has some potential merit to it so we're not wasting a lot of resources. And, and, um, and they are very helpful. Yeah, and I missed a point that I wanted to ask you because I had to bring up the case of the, the murder of Jerry Granzall. I know um, what's the status of that case, and you mentioned a, a wife that you're going to be speaking to, and I wasn't sure if that was the case. Well, I don't want to say specifically with whom I am talking. Yeah. Um, Granzall case, obviously, is a horrific case. Mm-hmm. It is underway. Yeah. Uh, we are not at a point where we have all the information necessary to make decisions. Mm-hmm. But this is a case in which one of the defendants, uh, as you know, is a juvenile, and mm-hmm. therefore there are certain limitations that, mm-hmm. that any prosecutor has on what sort of sentences or resolutions you might seek. We've yeah. been very clear that that juvenile's case, because of many things, including how heinous the crime is, needs to be tried in adult court. The motion from the defense to try to have it go to juvenile court was withdrawn. Mm-hmm. So we know that these defendants case will be resolved in adult court and we take it to be, you know, as serious as every other homicide we have, which yeah. means we take it to be incredibly serious. Yeah. And, you know, to close this out, I know that, you know, you mentioned at the beginning that there was going to be another big announcement coming up um, about victims and how you're dealing with that. What are, what are your next big What's the next big move besides victims? I mean, there's big buckets of reforms Mm -hmm. needed, but what is your next big focus? Well, there are many, but one of the next big points we want to get at is that the problem is not just mass incarceration. The Mm -hmm. problem is also mass supervision. Based on a report coming out of Columbia University from a couple months ago, turns out that Pennsylvania is the worst state in the country when it comes to excessive periods of parole supervision. No case is right there, yeah. Yeah, that's right there. And um, that, that Pennsylvania is the third worst state in the United States for a combination of probation and parole. The reason excessive probation and parole is so harmful yeah. is that it causes people to fail after the first three years. The mm-hmm. reality is people do worst when they have to keep going to see a PO longer than is necessary, when they're being tested years and years later, and lo and behold, they have some weed in their system, which should be a big so what, but to some judges is a reason to to break that person by pulling them out of the home, putting them back in a jail cell, getting rid of the job they've held for years and and their role as provider. And, you know, the list goes on and on. If you were to supervise me for the next 20 years, 
trust me, I'll end up in a jail cell somehow yeah, yeah. because that's just what it is. I mean, what do you do when your boss says, no, you're not going to see your PO and your PO says, I'm locking you yeah. up if you don't leave work. What do you do? So, um, Bad things happen when supervision is excessive. It doesn't make anybody safer. Yeah. It also overloads probation and parole, so they can't focus on dangerous offenders. They end up having just you know a revolving door of too many people, most of whom don't need to be supervised. So we're yeah. going to place a real priority on our office recommending reasonable periods of supervision and also our office making efforts to reduce the overwhelming load on the probation department by getting a lot of people off probation and parole. Yeah, and everybody can see that long line on Broad Street. You go down there anytime in the morning, you'll see it. Well, Larry Krasner, there's uh, so many things we could still talk about. Police, we could talk about so many things, but I appreciate you taking the time and appearing on Flashpoint uh, and talking about you know, the many issues in the news that involve you. <laughs> well, thank you. I really appreciate having a chance to talk to you about that. All right. Next up, momentum is building to make change along North Broad Street. This is our showcase time. Two upcoming events designed to get folks to the corridor to see the renaissance in progress. We'll be right back. Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community. And has North Broad Street been looking better and better to you? It has to me. Well, it's because of North Broad Renaissance. It's an organization behind the major effort to revitalize the prospering corridor. They're challenging Philadelphians to think broad with several initiatives to put North Broad Street on the map, so to speak. The latest effort is transforming the street into a playground for children and adults alike, as well as their annual jazz festival. Here to tell us more is Ken Scott, CEO of the Beach Companies, and Charlotte Castle. She's Philly Free Streets Program Manager. Welcome to the KYW Studios. Hey, thank you. Good to see you again, as always. I want to talk about North Broad Street because it has changed Mm -hmm. over the past few years, especially. It's clean. It's nice. There's lights. Y'all shining up there. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, uh, you know, we'll have a big surprise. You know, we've been working on those lights in the middle of the street. So it was about to uh, launch something new that everyone will get a chance to see on uh, August 10th. What has been the big change on North Broad? Well, you know, we started the whole thing was about communications and working with the existing community, the existing neighbors, along with all the new development to make sure that everybody's on the same page. Everyone knows what's going on. Of course, there's new activities. You know, the Met finally is is under construction. That's that's planning on opening up in January. The new development. Lorraine Hotel, some of the other new uh, buildings and commercial buildings, restaurants, all kinds of new restaurants. Obviously, South opened a, a while back. So there's several new things going on. We've, you know, we started back, uh, we're 10 years now into opening the movie theater on North Broad Street with the shopping center. So all kinds of exciting activities on North Broad. And like I said, clean, safe, walkable, green, all it's the green we put on. Yeah, it's, I'm telling you, it's alive. It's popping. And so on August 11th, there's the Jazz on the Ave Festival. If y'all don't know, they shut down Cecil B. Moore yes. for several blocks. The we street- shut the street down from Broad Street to 17th. 17th, it's yeah. two stages, main stage on Broad Street, second stage for the young people on uh, 17th Street. All yeah. the young and upcoming uh, talent. Great artists on the main stage, P.J. Morton's headline Grammy winner. Most people knew him from Room 5 as a keyboardist. So between him, Algebra Pissette's coming down from New York. Cluff Club, they're great, but also our young and upcoming Philly Soul Stock. They're, they're down at the second stage, and I wanted to mention that young Cam Anthony, who just won Showtime at the Apollo, you know, we had him two years ago. He's one of our young, upcoming talents, and now he's on the big time. 
Wonderful. And so that's been happening for a few years, several years, 12 yes, years, 12 you said. Years, yes. I've gotten a chance to go. It's a lot of fun. And the one thing I hadn't heard of was Philly Free Streets. Absolutely. What it, is it? So Philly Free Streets is an awesome people-powered initiative of the city of Philadelphia that temporarily closes streets to cars, inviting people to walk, bike, and play in the streets. It's really a celebration of our streets as public spaces, and it's an introduction to Philadelphians about how walkable our city is, getting people to think about walking as a mode of transportation. So you you can start at City Hall, take a stroll all the way up North Broad, yes. yep. chill out at the Jazz on the That's Ave right. Festival, That's right. That's right. and you can keep on walking from there. Absolutely. Yes. If you make it all the way up to Erie Avenue by 10 a.m., you could be back down to Cecil B. Moore by noon um, to spend the rest of the evening on Cecil B. Moore with Jazz on the Ave. I think it's going right. to be a really special um, Saturday on August 11th. And you get your steps in. Oh, That's absolutely. Right. That's right. Get your yeah. workout in. And so what does this do for North Broad Street? Because, I mean, Philly had a bad reputation, mm-hmm. especially North Philly. Yes. Um, you know, everybody was revitalizing all other parts of the city. And then North yes. Philly was like, oh, you don't want to go up there. And and just by forcing, well, not forcing people, but by <laughs> opening the area up for walkers, what does that do? You know, the Beach Jazz on the Ave, which, you know, is the music festival, was started basically to say, hey, look at all the changes that are taking place on North Broad. Back in 1990, when Beach first started, you know, the area was the highest in crime and poverty. And uh, so, but, you know, over the years, we've built 2,000 new homes. We, now we have all this new housing that's come along that's market rate between the schools, the businesses. That's why we built, you know, the movie theater and that shopping center and um, helped with Progress Plaza and, and with the supermarket and so forth. It's just here the area has come alive and, you know, we want to showcase. This is our showcase time. We'll say, come to North Philly, come check out North Broad, look at all what's going on. Yeah, and I- and I understand the mayor is going to take the stroll. Yeah, absolutely. So every year the mayor does his power walk at Philly Free Streets. This will be our third <laughs> annual Philly Free Streets. At 9 a.m. he'll kick off at City Hall, and he's really excited to walk north. And he does walk the whole route, and he does walk a very quick pace. So if okay. you're up for trying to keep up with him, you're certainly welcome to join. If not, you can wave to him as he strolls by. All right. So I just want to say Philly Free Streets, Saturday, August 11th from 8 to 1. You can do just stroll on up, right. get your power walk with the right. mayor. Absolutely. Wonderful. And yeah, then absolutely. at noon? And at noon, of course, we have the Beach Jazz on the Ave uh, Music Festival featuring Philly Soul Stock. So come out and enjoy all the entertainment. And also, you know, educational material, the health screenings will be taking place. We have a kids' zone, a whole area, just nothing but children's activities. And you can't beat the price. Free, free, free. Free. Same with us. Free, free, free. <laughs> so tell us where people can find out more information going forward. We're on Facebook, Jazz on the Ave, Beach Jazz on the Ave, on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, BECHBeachCompanies.com. And for Philly Free Streets, phillyfreestreets.com. If you're a neighbor, there's a tab for neighbors and businesses. In that tab, you'll find out all the information you need about how the day may impact you. We'll also be having street closure information available to neighbors by calling 311. And if you want to volunteer, there's a Get Involved tab. We would love to have you out there. Volunteers will get a free T-shirt as well as a cap or a visor. Wonderful. So go to phillyfreestreets.com or jazzontheavephilly.com and check it out. August 11th is going to be the day. Stuff is going to start off at 8 a.m. and it's going to go all the way to oh, yeah, 8 yeah. between the and two forget, events. don't uh, forget, you know, North Broad Renaissance, you know, hashtag Think Broad. Yeah, hashtag Think Broad. Well, I want to say thank you to Charlotte Castle. Thank you to Ken Scott for coming on Flashpoint and talking about the changes that are happening on North Broad Street. Hey, thank you. Thank you again. Thank you. 
that's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. You can follow Flashpoint Show on Twitter and let us know what you think by using the hashtag FlashpointFam. You can also follow me at Cherry Greg. Subscribe to the podcast for exclusive content using the Apple Podcast app, the Radio.com app, or other platforms and search Flashpoint KYW. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As the late Nelson Mandela once said, overcoming poverty is not a gesture of charity. It's an act of justice. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.